Father, I pray that you would just um, meet with us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, illuminate the Word of God to us as we are approaching that in places. And uh, God, as we are using in places uh, evidence and man's reason to, um, to give an apologetic for the fact that your Son did indeed raise from the dead bodily. Um, I pray that you would give me eloquence and I pray that you would help me to communicate your truth and just good reason uh, here today. Uh, and I pray that you would just bless the discussion and bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. So, anyway, today we are going to be studying why we, in fact, believe the resurrection did indeed happen. Now, what is our primary source for believing why the resurrection happened? The scriptures. Scriptures. I am so proud of this class. This is great. All right, the scriptures. Now, here's the thing. Uh, when it comes to the resurrection, the resurrection is, is, is kind of the cornerstone uh, of our faith. I mean, if the resurrection didn't happen, it, this is all for nothing. Um, but if the resurrection did happen, we win. And this is awesome. Because let me tell you, following the Christian life is not easy. It's not comfortable. There are a lot of trials. And let's face it, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, and if I have no hope of a future life, um, I wouldn't want to live this life. <laughs> being totally honest with you about that. Although I have plenty of blessings and there's a lot of joy along the way. Now, um, so I want to kind of take this under consideration. That we have a lot of evidence uh, because the resurrection happened, we can argue for a lot of things. Both Old Testament scripture, New Testament scripture can be supported with the, with the resurrection. A lot of just other things about just the fact that it's good news, uh, salvation, everything is out of the resurrection. But let's consider this one little fact. If it wasn't for the, when you go and communicate with a non-believer, a lot of times the, the initial thing is like, well, this happened and, and the Bible says so. And for the non-believer, most of them don't care. Um, or or in, in some situations where they're willing to recognize that maybe it happened, they don't really understand why their resurrection is so important. I did a, um, did a lecture at Oberlin uh, a year ago. And after the lecture, this one guy's like, well, I can, I'll agree that maybe the resurrection happened, but why is that such a big deal? And so... We have to address a lot of things today. And so what I want to do is both deal with Scripture and with other evidence to support that the resurrection did happen. Now, it's both we're dealing with not just that it happened, but that it was a bodily resurrection. Um, and uh, this is going to be fun. So anyway, a brief apologetic on the resurrection. Here, I'm going to try not to stand in the way of the projector. Okay, we're going to deal with some uh, specific uh, information here. First of all, we're going to deal with the fact that the tomb is empty. Um, which sounds rather cliche, but it's actually some very good evidence. We're going to talk about why. We're going to talk about the reliable historical documentation, uh, which is going to be really fun. Uh, we're going to talk about eyewitness accounts, because eyewitness testimony is always valuable. Uh, we're going to deal with the critics and what they say about it, and we're actually going to use their arguments to support us, because, believe it or not, the critics end up shooting themselves in the foot. It's beautiful. Um, and then we're also going to deal with the effects of the resurrection. Um, and I got to tell you, this is an exciting time to be a believer. Um, there, we're, we're at a time where, in the academic world, a lot of things are being re-questioned. Since Einstein's theory of relativity has come along, we've we've totally reformulated our view of the universe, and the, the effects of it are still kind of taking place. But now we're starting to question a lot of the uh, atheistic and naturalist philosophers and saying, well, maybe they weren't right. Um, exciting side note. Really doesn't matter who believes what, I mean, the truth is the truth, no matter who believes. But it's really fun when we, when we win somebody over. Um, and, uh, I was actually in a class with Gary Habermas. We're gonna use one of his arguments today. I was in one of his classes, and he was in the midst of this ongoing conversation with Anthony Flew, who is the, one of the foremost, um, atheists of, of this most recent generation. And, um, Anthony Flew, primarily as a result of under, his understanding of the resurrection, has become a theist. Um, and so all of the atheists are mad because Anthony Flew now thinks that, you know, and they're trying to say that he's crazy and senile now, and as it turns out, he's still writing proficiently, and he's still quite brilliant, and his mind is quite sharp, and they don't really know what to do with it. And his quote, now this is, this is key to what we're going to study today. Anthony Flew says, when, when his... Former atheist friends come to him and say, you know, what are you doing? He says, I have to go where the evidence leads. And this is a key phrase that I'll say a lot. The truth is not afraid to be tested. And let me tell you, we, are, we, have, we have, since, uh, since the fundamentalist movement, we've had, a, we've had kind of a fear in Christianity to, um, to allow academic, the academic rigors to kind of uh, to test Christianity. I want, you to, I, want to, I want to encourage you. 
that God's truth is truth. There's no fear in testing truth. And uh, we come out ahead when we allow it to be tested. Yeah, Sam. Just to explain, if you walk with mind, This is a very good... You know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. Because Anthony Flew has not accepted Christianity yet. Um, a theist is simply a person who believes in God of some sort. Now, a theist, we could say that Muslims are theists. Um, we could say that um, anybody who believes in any kind of a, even quote-unquote, higher power would be a theist of some sort. Um, an atheist, of course, is someone who believes that there is only the natural world, there is no supernatural power in the world, um, and uh, would be totally anti anything to that effect. Now, Anthony Clue has since, be, you know, since becoming a theist, he says, I recognize that a God exists. Um, and um, he's not quite made the jump into Christianity. Uh, the exciting thing is, though, he's, you know, he's a monotheist, specifically. He believes in one God. The exciting thing about that is um, you kind of have your choice between Islam and Christianity. And uh, if, you, if you hear him talk... Um, you know, Anthony Flew will say, well, reading scripture is, is beautiful. It's a beautiful book of literature. It's wonderful. And, but when he talks about reading the Quran, he says, it's penance. It's horrible. I hate the way it's written. And uh, I think it's interesting that as far as the um, rationality and even the beauty of our key book, he seems to be leaning towards Christianity, but he certainly hasn't accepted, which I think is ironic given that the, the resurrection was one of the key things that drew him. Um, so anyway, we're going to tear into that. That's an excellent question. So anyway, the tomb is empty. Now, I know this sounds silly, but the fact is, we can't find Jesus' body. Okay? No, he's not anywhere. We can't find it. Um, now, in certain situations, you know, we can go and do research and say, well, here's this tomb, and this looks like where this person is lying, and, you know, we can give some evidence here. Um, but we know, and, and so you can say, well, maybe it was a long time ago. How are you going to find the tomb? Okay, recognizably so. But the reality is that even in the first century, even the critics of the resurrection, even the, um, the non-believers, the, uh, the religious leaders of the day, and um, even the political leaders of the day, were recognizing the fact that, hey, his body is not in the tomb. Okay, and they're scrambling around trying to cover up the fact that the tomb is empty. Now, then they go about, um, now we're going to talk more about this later, but they go about torturing all the guys that say, hey, this guy rose from the dead. Now, interesting thing, we're going to talk about this later, but um, all of the apostles, save of course Judas, were willing to be martyred for the belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, the theory that comes across is like, well, the tomb is empty, we all recognize that the tomb is empty, but, um, but certainly, you know, it was his apostles that hid his body away so they could make this whole religion. Here's the thing. You will get people that will die for a lie a lot. I mean, let's face it. People will drink Kool-Aid and do stupid things because they believe in a lie. But seldom do you have a sane person claiming a truth who is willing to die for that truth. And that's exactly what was happening with the apostles. Now, who else is going to have hidden the body? The apostles are the ones who would have hidden it. And if you start torturing those guys, if they had hid Jesus' body, it's going to be very quickly that they're going to be like, okay, wait a minute, no big deal, you know, his body's over here, sorry, I don't really like being tortured. Um, I always use the example, let's say that I started my own religion, and I decided that everyone had to listen to heavy metal just like me, and that was how you became closer to the, uh, the Dan Force. Um, and uh, the longer, longer that you're involved in this, and you know, I, I make this whole religion on how you, how you have to do this, Let's say that someone, hopefully Church of the Open Door would come in and come against me on that, but let's say someone comes up against me and puts a, um, a large caliber weapon to my head and says, Dan, if that's true, we're going to kill you if, unless you renounce your whole heavy metal faith. Um, very quickly, I'm going to say, you know what, I'm just kidding. It was just kind of a way to make some money. I'm going to deny it. Now, we could maybe say, okay, maybe a crazy person would make up a lie and believe in it. But the apostles died for the fact that they believed that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead and they didn't just hide his body. would have been interesting if it was one, but when you consider that 11 guys were willing to die for it, and even beyond that, it was more than just the apostles that saw the resurrected Christ. We had multiple people that were willing to die for this fact. We're going to talk more about uh, evidencing this and why, and we're going to support that argument a little bit more, but 
pretty doggone exciting, if you tell me, you know, if you ask me. Now, the other thing is the, the current site that historians believe to be the tomb of Jesus is, in fact, empty. Now, this is a little less, um, we can't make as much of an argument because there's been debate and we think it might be this tomb or maybe this tomb. But there's one that they're pretty sure about, and it's empty. Um, and there's some little bit of evidence, evidence there. Now, one thing that's been brought up that I address pretty much just because it's come up in, um, in the last couple of years in the media um, but it's ridiculous, and to be honest, not even not even recognized critics will uh, will agree with this. But uh, James Cameron, the guy who made the uh, the Titanic movie and all that kind of stuff, came out with this documentary about called the Jesus Tomb, um, where he says um, he found this tomb. He and some buddies um, with uh, now, of course, he says it's some archaeologists or whatever, and the tomb is marked Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. He's making this big deal about, see, Jesus' body in the tomb, we found the bones, and he's made this big deal about it. Now, the interesting thing is, finding a tomb or a, um, or, or a bone box or anything that says Jesus, Mary, and Joseph is a lot like going to a, um, a cemetery around us and looking at three gravestones that say Joe, Sarah, and, you know, Mary. Um, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's very, those are common names for the time. It's not a big deal to find that. And, um, and I'm, I just wanted to point this out because a lot of people were getting really shaken up about this. They're like, oh, did they find Jesus' body? Let me tell you, not even critics of the resurrection recognize this as, as valid historical evidence of any sort. Um, it's just kind of ridiculous, and James Cameron's just trying to get some points. And let's face it, why would we listen to a movie maker about an academic and philosophical and historical piece of information. So anyway, uh, now we're going to talk about the do early documentation. This is going to feel a little bit like bibliology for a little bit here, but uh, we're going to talk about what it takes for a historical document to be valid. Now, before we move on from that, are there any questions about the empty tomb? Uh, there's going to be more to that argument earlier. We're kind of setting the stage, but making sense like it, it's empty. And so he must be somewhere. Where is he? Are there any questions about that before we move on? I don't want to move too fast. If I'm moving too fast, by the way, flag me down. All right, so let's talk about the early uh, reliable historical documentation. Now, we have kind of three major, uh, and with Scripture a fourth, we have three major ways that we, uh, we recognize the historical document as valid. Uh, if it is an early account, if there, if there are several copies of it, and if there are very few variant readings, which a variant reading is like a, a, a contradiction. You know, if you've got a copy over here that says that Dan was wearing a blue shirt and a copy over here that he was wearing um, a flowered shirt, then that could be a variant reading, possibly. Maybe I'm wearing a blue flowered shirt. I know that sounds silly, but this is something to be taken into consideration. Variant readings are the other one. And the other thing we take into account with Scripture is the fact that the preservation was so very cautious. Um, we're going to talk about that more as we go along, but let's first deal with early account. Uh, what we're going to do here is compare two contemporary people. Uh, first, Jesus, and then Tiberius Caesar. Because they were contemporaries and died about the same time. And what we're going to look at is the, the documentation that we have for these two historical figures. And we're going to say, okay, let's compare them and see which is good. Because everybody recognizes that Tiberius Caesar existed. Historians will say, yes, we have great historical evidence about him. We have early documentation. We can really say a lot of good stuff about Tiberius. All right, so we see Jesus dies in A.D. 30 to 33, Tiberius A.D. 30 to 31, right around the same time. Now, so let's compare the sources. Now, the earliest source that we have for Tiberius is Paterculus. Um, I put plus zero, which means Paterculus actually hung out with Tiberius during his life. Okay, it's kind of like um, if uh, I don't if I wrote a book about Alan. I know Alan. He's my friend. We hung out together a little bit. Although I don't think Paterculus really hung out. He just kind of was a soldier in his army. Um, you know, he's a contemporary though. He can write historical because he was alive at that time, right? And his documentations come out during Tiberius' life. Here's the interesting thing though with Paterculus, he didn't know Tiberius as Caesar. He only knew him as a general. So we're kind of limited on the information we have. But hey, that's an early source, so that makes Tiberius, and whatever Paterculus says, we can taste and say, that's probably good stuff. Does that make sense so far? Okay, now the earliest source we have for Jesus is the Gospel of Mark. Um, now, Gospel of Mark, obviously Mark was hanging out around the, around the same time, but he didn't write a lot during the same time that he was with Jesus. 
So his document comes out about 40 years after Jesus' death, around AD 70. Okay, that's considered still within the same lifetime, within a generation, it's still really good. Maybe not quite as early as Paterculus, but it's pretty good. Okay, so then let's move on to the next one. We have, we have the next one for Tiberius is Tacitus. Tacitus, still pretty early, plus 75. A little bit further away than Mark, but pretty good. And we're going to say, hey, Tiberius, yeah, we can trust the things that were said about him. Matthew is plus 50, Luke plus 50. And you can notice over here, Suetonius, we start getting pretty far away. That's plus 83. Now, these are the first, the closest four on both sides. The closest four documents that we have. We jump down here to John, still plus 65, all within the same lifetime right here. The, the earliest sources for Jesus are all written by people who lived with him during his life. And Tiberius, within the fourth one, we've got this Diocassius guy who writes a historical document 180 years after his death. But we still trust this. We say, ah, oh, this is good. This is really good. But for some reason, when you go to the Gospel of John and you want to say something about the historical life of Jesus, people want to say, oh, well, no, we can't trust that. It's been written, you know, too far off. And I'm, I want to say, why? You trust Diocassius. He's written more than a lifetime beyond it. You're not going to trust the Gospel of John by a guy who was living at the same time as him. Okay? Now, this is an interesting thing because what happens is essentially, as far as early documentation in the New Testament, the New Testament wins. Like, we, we, we are, all, all of our major documents on Jesus are written within the first century. Okay? In fact, we have other, others more than this because... Um, in Galatians, the, the Apostle Paul goes and even talks to the Apostles about the resurrection. Long story. But is this making sense how, how the guys who wrote about Jesus wrote early? Okay? They were all living within his time. So, now this is an interesting thing. Because we take all of the things written about Tiberius and say, this is good historical documentation. We're going to take this. We're going to be excited about it. As far as on that point, the New Testament is just as sound and just as solid. Now, I'm only talking about the, uh, the Gospels here, but as far as Paul goes, we have even better stuff. So, we're going to move on from there. Um, so, anyway, the other thing, we, so we've talked about the fact that it was written early. Okay? We're gonna, I'm going to use an illustration. Let's, let's say that, um, that there was going to be a, um, a story done on our class. Let's say that um, Chronicle Telegram does a story on us. Okay? They're writing about us, and let's say the, uh, the reporter is here. He writes the story. Okay? Now, let's, let's say, of course, it's an early documentation, right? Because he was here that day. Okay? Let's say, hey, um, let's say that... Who's going to write the story? Who wants to be the author of the day? Um, we'll make Holly. Holly writes well. Holly is going to be the one she writes about it today. Okay, so it goes in the Chronicle Telegram, and it's gone. We already have. We've won with historical doc, early documentation. Okay? She lives in the same lifetime as me, and she's written about it. It's in the Chronicle Telegram. Okay? Let's deal with number of copies now. Now, in order for a first century document to be considered a solid document, you want to have 25 copies. Okay? That's considered a lot. That's considered, man, you can just write that in stone because it's so many copies. It's essentially like saying, okay, um, we've written, Holly's written the story, they print it in the Chronicle Telegram, and uh, let's say we've got maybe 25 people around Illyria that save newspapers. And they've saved that newspaper. And um, huge mudslide covers our town or whatever happens and 2,000 years from now they dig up all these newspapers and they start going around and they're like well here's, here's this newspaper from you know whatever July 8th you know and they're writing this story about this class and then you, they dig up another house and they find the other newspaper and before long they've got about 25 copies and because all the copies match up they're like this is really good they might even have one that was maybe an early edition that somebody that printed up with some misprints that somebody took from there before, you know, they weren't supposed to. And so maybe there's one variant reading, but we've got a lot of copies of the newspaper that say, man, this is, this is copied really well. This, this guy, Dan, must have taught that class, and um, he, they must have really had some people in there. They must have really talked about the resurrection. This is good evidence. Are we making sense at this point? Go ahead. Just a question. Mm-hmm. You're comparing something that's, I don't want to say, like Xerox copies. Okay? Mm-hmm. But back then, when they were doing copies, 
Oh, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Um, we're gonna talk about that, and that's a great question. Don't let me forget to to talk about that because that's a very good question. Um, let's yeah, don't let me forget because that's actually really exciting. Now, interesting thing here. So, 25 is considered good. One of the best historical documents we have is Homer's The Iliad. Are you all familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey? You know, great. You know, his, you know, Greek mythology. Okay, we have 650 copies of Homer's Iliad. That is just astounding. It's amazing. I mean, when 25 is considered really good, 650 is blowing it out of the water, right? And so we go around now, we go around very excited about the fact that we have such a great historical document. Now, an interesting thing there about the Iliad, though, has a lot of variant readings. You can pick up a copy here that, you know, maybe this guy did this and another guy did this, and you pick up another copy over there and they're doing different things. We still consider it pretty good, but we recognize that there's some variant readings and we try to just say, well, Okay, so we're not going to get too excited about this, you know. We're pretty sure that Homer really wrote it, but somewhere in the copying or in the retelling, something went wrong. But no big deal, it's still really good, and we got it for the most part right. Okay? They still recognize that very strongly. Do you know, as far as the Greek New Testament goes, we have 5,000 copies. Okay, 25 is good. 650, you know what? Homer's the Iliad gets second place. We have the most well-copied historical document from the first century, hands down. In fact, not just is it the number one, it is by such an astounding margin, it's completely ridiculous. Okay? Yeah? So, Jeff, to talk about how close the first copy is to the actual initial writing. Yeah, which is very important, and we're actually going to talk about that too, which plays in a little bit with our copying here. Um, you know what, let me finish this slide and we're going to talk about that. The other thing, if, if we include the Latin, we have like 15,000 copies, but we're not as excited about the Greek. What's that? We're talking about within the first century, for the most part. Might have spilling into the second century, but as far as like early documents that were filtering around that time. Um, so anyway, I mentioned this, the New Testament exists in more copies than any other, other first century document. Now, so the thing comes up then. Um, we've talked about the copy. Okay, first of all, we've got the fact that there are 5,000 copies with very few variant readings means somebody was copying very well. We might not have had a Xerox machine, but somebody was copying really, really well. Um, and actually, there were some very, um, what's the word, rigorous copying methods that were being used. But then we also have this issue, first of all, I believe the Holy Spirit was guiding the process anyway, but, um, but on the whole thing of like it being close to the original. Let's think about this fact. During the first century, you have, um, you have all, these, uh, all these believers who are being persecuted. The apostles are being persecuted. They're being chased about. All the believers and, you know, are just running about trying to uh, stay alive. And at the same time, they're spreading the gospel. And so then they're also writing. Um, and you have these early eyewitnesses of the resurrection writing and sending their letters and other documents to other people. Like you'll have Luke, you know, of course, he's compiling you know, a lot of eyewitness accounts and other things. And he's, you know, he's, he's writing his letter to Theophilus, which we're not sure whether he was a real person or because Theophilus means lover of the truth. It could be a lot of people. OK, so then you've got, you know, over here you might have Peter and you have Paul over here and you have, you know, another apostle over here. And their letters are circulating to the various churches. Now, let's say, um, let's say I... I Let's say I'm, I'm writing a book about Jim Mendling. And, um, or maybe I write a letter to somebody about, you know, how things are going with Jim. And I'm, I'm maybe, um, I've maybe known Jim, but then I've had to run away because, I don't know, the police are chasing me because I am a Calvinist. Um, and then, um, let's say, let's say then that, um, that somebody else is also being chased away for that same reason, but they're in, you know, they're in Montana and I'm in Florida because I think I would go to Florida rather than Montana. And, um, and we're writing. Now, we're writing to each other's churches in the various cities. Let's say that there's some other guy who didn't know Jim. Let's say that some guy, Francis McGillicuddy, he decides he's going to write like this, you know, false gospel of Jim. And he's going to tell this whole fake story about how Jim, you know, he was really this very short guy um, who um, had a spiky haircut and, um, I don't know, didn't like 
playing the guitar. I'm trying to think of something random. Okay, if that letter starts circulating, here we're writing our good letters, and um, and let's say um, let's say you're writing the other letter from Montana about Jim. You're going to hear my letter because we're passing around in the churches. This is not that we would write about Jim this way, but um, and you're you're going to write back and you're going to say, hey, Dan's letter is good. That's good stuff. He's telling the truth. I'm also an eyewitness. I'm verifying that. I'm going to find your letter. I'm going to be like, his letter is good. We like it. You know, and there's probably going to be a lot more guys. We're going to be saying, and her letter is good. Her letter is good too. This is good stuff. Okay, we're mutually, you know, matching things up. So then those are the letters that we copy. All right, so things are just kind of copying around. The more that are copied then, the more that I have the chance to say if something's wrong, if something's not true. And so, and the more that I say, hey, no, this is good, I'm here, then, then my church is going to copy that letter. Let's say your letter comes to my church and I'm saying, no, he's telling the truth. I was there, I can verify, they're going to copy that letter a lot more. Now, so then the guy who comes along and says some ridiculous things about it, then you and I are there to be like, wait a minute, that's not true. We met Jim, we sat in his church, this letter, not true. Don't copy this one at the church at Laodicea, or don't copy this one at the church at Philippi. It's bad news, forget about this one. Okay? So that's what we have where it's like, okay, we can start recognizing we have the chance as the letters are passing around to kind of verify each other, which we see that. We see Paul recognizing Peter's writings. We see Peter recognizing Paul's writings. And then just the general fact that the letters are being passed about and, and people in the churches, the apostles are, saying, are copying it and saying this is good stuff. Now, this is really interesting because we have all these good copies that are being passed around well. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Does it, does it make sense how the number of copies is important? Does that answer that question? Whether well, that you asked earlier about the being close to the first one? Because as long as it's a, a copy, as long as it's a good version, then another person who is an eyewitness can say, hey, that was good, let's copy that one. It's true because I'm also an eyewitness. Um, whereas absolutely it has to be, the, it's the original autographs that is inspired, but as far as... Um, if we can recognize the eyewitness account and say this is good and someone else who was there can say this, this is the truth, he's writing for real, then we can kind of say, well, this is a good one to copy. It is important that it be the first one, but let's say that, a, um, let's say that somebody was copying a bad copy. We're, we're spread about the world. When one of the bad ones comes along, we can say, wait a minute, that's just not true. I was there. Um, does that make sense? The sheer number of copies, we tend to verify that that we were putting our stamp of approval, right? And that that it's la- yeah, it's last that yeah. Because if let's say that the you know once once you've copied it a few times and, and the people in various churches are seeing the various apostles or various other eyewitnesses, they're going to continue to put their stamp of approval. Those are going to be the ones that they copy. Um, and you're only going to get believers copying at this time because nobody else cares. There's probably no point to us, you know, being post Gutenberg. Yeah, it is kind of formative. But for them. That handwritten copies were, were important. Very. Well, and yeah, if you're going to spend that much time to do the copy, you're going to you're going to want to make absolutely sure that that's the right one. Yeah. I was just wondering where are um, the fifteen thousand copies? Um. Well, we have. A, it, that's interesting. We have um, certain certain things. I mean, we find just early first century things. I mean, we have Dead Sea Scrolls and other things like that that are well. It's kind of a different story with those, but. Um, you know, you'll have, some people have copies of original manuscripts, like, you know, there'll be museums or various groups that preserve them. Um, but, um, as, now the 15,000 copies, though, that's including the Latin, um, which is not going to be the same, still pretty good, because it's an early copy into another language, but um, in various, like, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a, I'm trying to think where we would get our hands on them, because we, when I was in Greek, when I was taking my Greek classes, they would give it. They would like have like little photographs of you know early manuscripts that of course are tattered and you know kind of nasty. But it was kind of cool. They would put like an overhead projector up with a picture of it, and we would copy from that just to feel like we we're copying from the original. Kind of cool. Um, but um, yeah, I mean spread about. I couldn't tell you where anybody had one to we're be honest. About copies of the complete canon. Right. We're not talking about the complete canon. We're talking about um. Copies of, like, you might have somebody who's got half of Luke, but it matches up with somebody who's got the whole one. You might have somebody else who's got the other half. You might have a few places that's got the whole one. You know, we're talking about various copies of various books that it's not like you've got 15,000 copies of, you know, Matthew through Revelation, 
you know, it's they're they're pieced about. And then we have we have very few occasions where there'll be like a little hole in the page, but you can match it up with another one and be like, oh wait a minute, this does match up. This is good. Um, does that make sense? So yeah, I'm not saying that we have full of the whole New Testament in all of this. Some of them are just being preserved. I, I don't know about cathedrals. You know, I should. That's a good question. I should know the answer to that, and I'm not sure where we would find them. I would have to. I'll, I'll, I'll have to talk to you about that. I mean, because I know, like, I just I just kind of took it for granted about, like, you know, they would they could show me a picture of it, and I'm like, I didn't ask, like, oh, where, you know, what museum has it? I do. I'm pretty sure the Vatican does have some. Um, I do know and I've heard a little bit about that. So we want to talk a little bit about the conscious preservation. We've already talked about that a bit. But anyway, we talked about how the apostles had the chance to critique. And we also talked a little bit about the early methods of preservation and copying. It was taken very seriously. We had great scholars who dedicated their lives to copying. Um, some of the, uh, you know, some of the methods that came over from, like, copying the Old Testament. You know, these guys that would go through ritual bathing. And uh, if, they, if they made a mistake, even a, the slightest little mistake, spelling error, they would break the pen, burn the entire document for one spelling error. I would never get anything done. <laughs> never, ever. And then they would go and bathe ritually. And I mean, that was, that was of course, for preservation in the Old Testament. But um, I would argue that because this was coming primarily out of the Jewish community, that we were, we were copying over some of those same methods. We were taking this, copying the scripture very, very, very seriously. So, all right. Now, is that making sense so far? Any questions on that so far? I realize that's a lot of information and we're assimilating it into an argument and it's not always easy to grasp it. So does it, does it make sense that when it comes to early documentation, the New Testament beats all? And when it comes to multiple copies, the New Testament absolutely kicks tail. And when it comes to low variant readings, we win like crazy. Which, by the way, I forgot to mention that before. But um, a variant reading is anything, any, slight contra- any kind of contradiction. Now... I'm going to be totally honest with you. Remember we said that, the, that Scripture is inspired in the original autographs. Okay? And we don't have those. Um, we have really good copies. Now, the variant readings that we have are very, very minuscule. We have a couple of places where there are some spelling differences. Um, and we have a, just a few. And we, we're talking about very few of these anyway. We have um, one or two where there is a word order change. Which, by the way, in Greek, sometimes word order doesn't matter as much. Uh, the ending of the word is what you know, dictates whether it's a, the subject of the sentence or the object of the sentence. And so you can throw the words around, not just however you want, but you can throw them around a little bit and they can still say the same thing. We have a couple places like that where the word order has changed. We have nothing that affects any major doctrine. There's, there's no variant reading that you can come and say, ah, see, over here, it says that Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. There is nothing about that at all. Um, we're talking about some spelling errors. We're talking about nothing that affects doctrine in any way whatsoever. Yeah? Uh, there's one variant uh, between among Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Perhaps Jared, I don't remember, but anyhow, uh, relative to the night prior to uh, the crucifixion, Peter standing around the fire... Uh, uh, and I forget who says what, but somebody has a young woman talking, somebody else has a young man talking, etc. Uh, asking, that is, asking Peter, like, have I seen you somewhere? Mm-hmm. So I know you. And the, the, the person asking the question in X Gospel has a woman asking, and Y Gospel has a man, uh, the third Gospel has a few people ask me. Mm-hmm. And I explained that in our class that I taught at Oberlin that this is all eyewitness stuff. I mean, it, it could be, in fact, I believe was, that all of them are true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I mean... Which is the beauty of having multiple eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. It's because then you're, you've got one guy saying it from this perspective over here and one guy from over there and when you can harmonize them, we're talking about like we're talking about corroboration, and that's good news. That's that's really good. That's a really, I'm glad you brought that up because we have a couple of places like that. We have a couple of places about the angels after Jesus' resurrection and how many there were, and and um, so many things like that. 
And it's interesting how quickly we are to jump to say, oh, there's a contradiction. Right. You know, if someone asks me why I wear a tie, I say, well, you know what? When I'm wearing a, you know, when I, when I, when I wear a button-up shirt, which I feel like sometimes I need to do anyway because I like it, uh, I feel kind of naked if I don't go ahead and put a tie on, too. I feel like I'm wasting that chance because ties are also... And then now someone else might ask me, like, why do you wear a tie? And I say, well, you know, ties are the last male accessory. I can make a statement with a tie. Okay, both of these things are true. Now, I've had some people that will, they just like to be hard to deal with. And so they'll, like, if you say two different things like that, they'll be like, you were lying the first time. And I'm like, nope. Both statements true. Not contradictory at all. Which, by the way, a lot, I would, I would recommend, if you ever get the chance to take, you know, just a basic logic course and, and dealing with little things like that, it's really interesting because so many things that we jump to conclusions on and get upset about, when you, when you realize that, like, a lot of things don't contradict. Um, then we learn to like things like scripture, which people will call certain things variant readings that in fact aren't. Um, good news. They're dying to do so in the first place. That's absolutely right. Um, any questions on that before we move on to the next thing? Because I'm kind of excited about this next argument that we have here for the resurrection. Now, I realize that we kind of mm, did a little rabbit trail to talk about scripture, but we're remembering that the New Testament says that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Okay, it's an eyewitness. There are eyewitness accounts and um, and testimony from eyewitnesses, even even if it's not written by the eyewitness himself. It's other people talking to the eyewitnesses in certain places uh, that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Okay, we're talking about an extremely valid historical document saying that he didn't just raise from that he didn't just you know like swoon and wake up, but that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven. We're talking about some very serious things happening that we have great historical evidence for. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about the question that comes about is like, well, could they have lied or maybe they misunderstood or maybe they were all hallucinating. We're going to talk about probably next week why that's not valid. But first, what I want to go into, because some guys won't take that whole historical document thing. They're going to be like, ah, it's not good enough for me. Because um, some people just like to be really, really critical. They like to just say, I question everything. They get this kind of mark of pride because they say that. And I'm like, well, I question you. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how we can use the critics themselves and begin with what's called the minimal facts method. Um, one of my professors, Dr. Gary Habermas, which the, the little argument we just did, Gary Habermas stuff, just so you know. And actually, while we're on that, um, if you're looking for some good books on this subject that can go well beyond what I'm teaching you, uh, Historical Jesus by Gary Habermas, very good book. And The Risen Jesus and Future Hope actually talks about the resurrection, some evidence for it, and, um, and actually talks a little bit more about like why life is good as a result. It's really cool. Um, or why we have hope of the future, I should say. Because, let's face it, current life is full of trials. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about the minimal facts. This is also uh, um, borrowing a lot from Dr. Habermas. I have to give credit to him. Um, the minimal facts method. Essentially what the minimal facts method does, and I actually recommend using this in any area of life. It's where you find a person that you disagree with on a subject. You find out the basic minimal facts that you all agree on. And then you build your argument on what they say, yeah, absolutely, I'll agree with you on that. Okay? It's a pretty exciting way to build an argument because then they can't argue. They can't say, well, you know, I don't believe that that is a good, uh, a good historical document. I don't care how many sources you have for it. I don't think that one's good. They can't do any of that because you're beginning by saying, okay, let's agree on this. And you agree and we agree. All right, now, now then you build your argument and then you kind of catch them. It's wonderful. Um, it's kind of like, um, not to be so, uh, but it's kind of like the, uh, I believe it's the teleological argument. I don't know why my brain is going, going dead on this, but um, where, where you get someone to agree that God is, we define God as that which nothing greater than can be conceived. And somebody will be like, that's a good definition for God. Even if I don't believe in him, I'll, I'll be like, yeah, that's how most people think. Yeah, we'll call that God. And they say, okay, is a being that exists greater than a being that doesn't exist. And then they say, well, yeah. So you agree that God exists? <laughs> and, and so, and which, okay, you're probably sitting there thinking, that doesn't make any sense at all. But when you get them to agree that God is defined as that, as that thing that nothing greater than can be conceived, and then they say, uh, and then you say, all right, well, but a thing that exists is greater than a thing that cannot exist, so God must exist. It took me like 10 years to understand that argument. But, a bit. It's, well, it's an argument from definition, essentially. That you're getting them to agree on the definition and then take them to that, that next level. That's not as good as this argument because some people still are like, that's just kind of silly. I think it's a pretty good argument when it's 
define much more eloquently than I am doing it right now. But um, anyway, the minimal facts method. What we're going to do, we're going to begin with the minimal facts and we're going to move from the things that we agree on to the thing that we don't agree on, but we want them to agree on anyway. Um, and so here's what we're going to do about the resurrection. Most critics, in fact, like 99.9% .9 of critics, will, are, will, will agree that the Apostle Paul did, in fact, write these books. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, Philemon's, and Galatians. Philemon, not Philemon's, sorry, and Galatians. Now, they're not going to necessarily believe that everything he writes in there is true, but they're going to say, he did write it. You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, somebody might write a book that, yeah, okay, but this guy wrote it. I don't agree with everything he says, but I know he wrote it. I believe it's a good copy. So nobody's going to go around, or I should say, very, almost no critics, no recognized critics, will go around and say, well, Romans wasn't really written by Paul. It was some other guy who was like a fake Paul. You don't, you don't see that a lot. Um, recognizing there are critics that go around and say, well, Luke wasn't really written by a guy named Luke, or that Mark wasn't really written by that guy named Mark. It was some guy named Q. Um, long story. Um, but you have that a little bit. But with these books, they say, well, we really do think these are good, good historical documents. Paul really wrote these. Okay, we say that's great. So that means that whether or not he really um, is right about these things, they're, they're, you know, it's, it really was him that wrote it. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you begin with that. You start talking about that. Because you know, they'll agree on that. So we say, okay. Say, I don't need anything else then. That's fine. Forget the Gospels. I'm going to win you over with this right here. Um, interesting thing. Twice in Galatians, remember Paul kind of has these, I don't want to say crisis of faith, but these things where he's like, I want to make sure that I'm teaching the gospel exactly right. And so he goes to Peter, James, and at one place John also to confirm the resurrection. If actually, will you all turn with me to Galatians 1.18? And um, could I have someone volunteer to read 1.18? Yes, and you want to, well, Danielle, you can read 2 9 then. Okay. Okay? Um, just let me know when you're there. You ready? That's good. That's the real word of God. <laughs> it's a copy. It's a copy. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. Now think about this. Cephas, he's talking about Peter. Peter is an eyewitness of the resurrection. Okay, now people will argue that the things written in the other Gospels about it weren't really what Peter, you know, really not a good document of Peter, it's too old, and Peter's not really, you know, it's somebody else writing about him, and it's like, okay. But right here, we have the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.18. Now, they're agreeing that Paul did in fact do these things, that he did do this. He is going and talking within a few years of the resurrection. 1.18, he is going and talking to Peter, who is close, and saying... Is this true? I mean, they're not going to go and just talk about, you know, the Browns. He's going because he's dealing with whether or not the resurrection, or, or, or I should say, whether or not he's teaching the right gospel. He wants to make sure. Yeah. Now, in verse 19, you can read on. Go for it. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Mm -hmm. So this is where he's talking to Peter and James. He didn't talk to anybody else. But he talked to those guys. And we're talking about inner circle guys that he talked to, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Pretty exciting. These are the guys that, like, Jesus came to in the upper room. These are the guys that, like, he walked on the water to go and see and told him to cast the fish on the other side. These are the guys that knew him and the guys that saw him before he died, the guys that saw him after he was resurrected. Shoot, these are the guys that saw him ascending to heaven. And the Apostle Paul, in a document that the critics recognize is authentic historical documentation, goes and talks to the eyewitnesses. Okay? It's as if we have a document from, um, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln. Somebody goes, some historian goes and has a conversation with Abraham Lincoln. And documents the things he says. And it's as if we have a copy like that. It's better than that. It's pretty good. And the critics will recognize that it's an authentic historical document that chronicles an eyewitness account of the resurrection. Now, he's not specifically talking about the resurrection there, but we know he's there for that reason and so he had to have been talking about it so we're just going to we're going to not get too excited about that we're just going to say probably um, because why would he ignore that one thing that they are most excited about um, now Danielle you had 2-9 you want to read 2-9 for us <coughs> James, Peter and John 
who are known as the pillars of the church, recognize the gifts God has given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. Now this is really exciting because there's more apostles there, and what is it that they're encouraging them to do? Preach the Gentiles. What, are, what is what is this big thing that Paul keeps preaching that he's making such a big deal about? Oh, don't leave me hanging. <laughs> what? The resurrection. Paul's going around teaching. I mean, when you read Romans. This is, which is like his magnum opus. It's really important. He's ta- he talks about the resurrection and the hope that we have as a result of that. He is going around saying this good news. If you read the theme of the book of Romans, which is, where do we find that? Tara? You can tell she goes to frequency. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you read it, he talks about it. It's the, the good news, the gospel. He's excited. Okay, and he's going around, and the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection... Say, keep on preaching it because you're preaching the right thing. I think that's a pretty good evidence here. And we have it in this book, in this very book, that the critics will agree, hey, that's a reliable historical document. If, if Paul says he talked to eyewitnesses there, well, he probably did. Okay, so then the question arises, okay, so we know that he had eyewitness document, eyewitnesses of the resurrection talking about it. The question arises then, maybe they were just lying. I mean, come on, we have liars in our world, right? Maybe the apostles... Liars. Maybe they're just bad guys who wanted to start their own religion and get everybody all in a tizzy. Um, let's think about that. Now, before we get to that, I almost jumped ahead of myself. First Corinthians fifteen five through eight. Could I get somebody to read that? Because that's kind of important too here, especially to our arguments coming up. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's King James. We'll we'll take King James. Um, Interesting. First Corinthians, also one of the documents that even the critics will argue, Paul wrote that. Now he's documenting. He's not copying eyewitness accounts, but he's documenting. These are the people that say they saw Jesus. Okay, over five hundred. Now that brings up an interesting thing. You might have one person go crazy and say, "Hey." I saw, you know, so-and-so raised from the dead. crazy person might say that. Might even be willing to die for it. Okay, maybe lie, or maybe just die for it because he's crazy. But to have 500 people all say the same thing, over 500, all say, I saw that guy raised from the dead. We kind of rule out simply mere craziness. Because the argument that gets raised every now and then, because, because we, we, they face the fact that like, these guys were willing to die for this truth, so they say, well, they probably weren't lying. And so then the next thing comes in, and, the, and even the critics will say, well, it's hard to say that they were lying, so maybe they were crazy. They were hallucinating. That's right. That's what we'll say. They were hallucinating. That makes perfect sense. It's why they believe so much. Um, and so then we have this issue. Well, what about, what about the fact that there were so many? Have you ever talked to somebody who hallucinated? Normally a person who hallucinates. I had this friend of mine. I'm going to get to you in a second, sorry. I had this friend of mine, uh, he didn't sleep for like three days in college because he was trying to catch up on his work during finals week. Not a good idea. Failure class. Don't stay up like that. Um, He stays up for, I think, three days on end, maybe sleeps like an hour or two in there. He starts hallucinating, okay? And so like he's he's at his desk going work and his roommates are a little worried about him. All of a sudden, he starts like swatting around. Now, keep in mind, it's like the winter semester, I believe, so it's really cold. There's not any insects around. He's going like, He's like swatting. He's like, did you guys see that bumblebee? There's this huge bumblebee in here, man. And they're like, man, you realize there's no bumblebee. Like, you know, it's too cold for bumblebees right now. Not a bumblebee around. And Kevin's like, which is his name. He's like, oh my goodness. He's like, I need to sleep. Very quickly, he was talked out of it. And no one else in the room saw this bumblebee. Okay, later on, um, (laughs) Kevin gets visited by a... Uh, a gnome of some sort <laughs> and, and um, I forget what the gnome told him or what it was but um, well, once again they were like Kevin 
You haven't slept in three days. Gnomes don't exist. And all of a sudden, once again, he's like, that's absolutely right. I need to sleep. And so he goes to sleep and, and things were dealt with and it was much better. But two things were interesting there. He was talked out of the hallucination very quickly and no one else saw it. Two people don't hallucinate the same time and the same place and the same thing. That's crazy enough for two to do it. But for over 500 to see the same thing and to have hallucinated it, it just doesn't happen. In fact, it would take a greater miracle for that many people to hallucinate it than for Jesus to actually raise from the dead. So, any questions on that? Does that make sense? You had a question over here. I was thinking when you were talking about um, the eyewitness accounts of how we are so critical mm-hmm. in today's world. Yeah. And I had a feeling that maybe they were much more acceptable at the time that all this just because the people knew each other and were known in their communities. I would relate it maybe to, we hear about people who had near-death experiences or are clinically dead and then come mm-hmm. back to life. And scientifically, it can be shown that their hearts have stopped, there was no respiration. They were for all intents and purposes, according to definition, they were dead. Mm-hmm. And that's a very acceptable thing as a general rule in society. You always are going to have critics about it. But most people are willing to accept the account of a person who says, this is what happened to me, here is the scientific data. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe the acceptance of the resurrection account was really easier for people that day to believe simply because of the, their knowledge of the witnesses. And just yeah. like we will accept the medical confirmation and the experiential description of a person who did have experience. You bring up a really interesting point of worldview. Because they were in a worldview that it was it made sense that, that things like that were like okay we're we're willing to accept it you know a little bit although still they would be rather incredulous to it there were people that would be like okay if you give me good evidence I'm going to take it the interesting thing about our culture today and I'm I'm, I'm hoping that we're reversing this a little bit but um since uh, since really the Enlightenment since uh, especially Isaac Newton and his whole theory of the universe we've developed what we call quote unquote a scientific worldview. Okay, which I think is kind of ridiculous because what we call as a scientific worldview is very unscientific in many ways. But essentially, it comes out of Newton's... I might have talked about this before, and if I get too excited, this is what my thesis is on. So, um, this, is, this actually plays in with, with the God-world-human relation. This is really important. But uh, Newton comes along, and desiring to kind of understand how the universe all works together, he really puts a lot of focus on the theory of gravity and on cause and effect. And he gets this idea that the universe of itself does not have an inherent order to it. That, that it's just kind of some stuff. But that he, in his vision, God exists almost as a box that kind of imposes order from the outside. Imposes rationality. This is kind of the basics of his theory. Um, and so it was as if God was the box, or he called him the divinum sensorium. God was this box that just pushes order on the universe. Like a cube. He just puts it all together. Okay, so then that means God is the box. First of all, order is from the outside. The universe of itself does not have order. Um, and everything then operates in this mechanistic cause and effect order. So if, if something happens two times in a row the same way, we say it's always like that. Because we operate in a machine, right? That's in Newton's theory. The universe was like a big machine. And if you could test it to happen the same way one time, then every time it's going to happen that way. So somebody comes along and says... Hmm. When people die, they stay dead. Every time it's going to be like that. And it sounds silly, but that's, that's essentially how it plays out in the, in the quote-unquote scientific worldview. And so then we become very incredulous to anything that hmm, seems to not fit into our little box. Well, interesting thing comes along. Einstein's here. Now, we had all this now philosophy and epistemology, the study of knowledge, all these things come along. And basing themselves out of Newton's physics, they say, well, okay, God can't enter the universe to reveal himself because... If he's the box that holds it together, he's going to mess everything up if he enters it. 
So ruling out the resurrection, ruling out the incarnation completely, just because, hey, it just doesn't work with our physics, right? That's the theory that comes about. And so then you have these philosophers that say, well, this is how the world must work. And then you have these scientists that say, we've tested it to go this way and that way it does it again this time. And so, so certainly it's always going to be this way. Well, then Einstein comes along and he says, maybe the universe doesn't exist as a box of mechanistic order, but maybe things operate kind of in relationship to each other. Maybe there is essentially kind of a, an order to the universe that doesn't have to be imposed from the outside. And so he develops his theory of relativity. And so we start realizing that the universe doesn't operate exactly as we thought. And so as, as, as people have studied subatomic physics and things like that, the rules of, you know, like, you know, something that's up here, if you drop it, it always falls down. We find out at the subatomic level, doesn't work. The rules aren't obeyed. We have crazy things like little subatomic things called quarks that teleport or that seem to be in two places at once and things just don't make sense. And so all of a sudden this mechanistic view that we had for so long, since Einstein's theory of relativity, people are saying maybe it's not so mechanistic. So then that raises an interesting thing. If the universe has its own order that I would argue is God-given and God doesn't have to sit on the outside and impose order, then if God wants to enter the universe to reveal himself, he just does. It's kind of like if things, if, if as Einstein's theory goes, if, if the universe, if everything in the universe operates in a continuum, if, if things are, if space is made by bodies just in relation to each other, then if Jesus wants to just relate, he can. That's really good news. It's really exciting when you think about the fact, when we read John 1, oh, and even Genesis, and we see how like, he was this, this same Jesus who was going to reveal himself in the universe was creating the universe for the purpose of revealing himself. And so he's designing this universe. How crazy would it be for him to be like, all right, I'm going to make this universe that I can't get into to reveal myself. No, he creates a universe that is absolutely radically open up to his divine self-revelation. So this is a really important thing when we think about how the universe relates. It's really good. So you brought up this thing about how, you know, so many now, when we talk about a resurrection or something, we're like, well, it doesn't fit into our scientific worldview, so it's out. Well, the interesting thing is, is a lot of the scientific fields, and really every field, has not really caught up with what Einstein's theory of relativity has done. And we're operating on Newton's old view that the universe is this very mechanistic, box-like system. And we're forgetting the fact that, wow, you know what? Uh, not everything happens exactly as we thought it does. And we test the thing a certain way and it happens this way and then there are other variables that we didn't take into consideration and then all of a sudden this thing happens over here. That's a little bit different. The, the interesting thing is, is science is supposed to be about observation, not about saying this is how it is every time. Um, and it's interesting that we messed a lot of things up when we got into this mechanistic view of the universe that said, well, it happened once this way, so it's going to be like that all the time. When we look at science and say, this is about um, observing the universe as it is revealed to us, um, we start saying, wait a minute, a lot more things are possible that we didn't think were possible. So, yeah. For, I, I think a lot of times uh, with our scientific worldview, we, we hear so much about how there's chaos and lack of order. And I think sometimes that's because we don't know enough and can't perceive enough to understand Absolutely. what is happening. My brother is a physicist, subatomic Oh, yeah. And my dad asked him some years ago what he, my brother, had observed among his colleagues as far as um, intelligent design. And what do your colleagues think about this? Or do they ever talk about it? He said, Dad, you cannot be in this business for very long without recognizing that there has to be some type of intelligence behind mm-hmm. our natural world. He said, it's he said, not everybody acknowledges God, but almost to a man, they acknowledge that there is some intelligent force behind the creation. It's really interesting. So even though there are areas that appear to be chaotic and, and incomprehensible because they don't necessarily fit our theories, there's still like an overriding recognition in the community that he works, that there is an order to the universe. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, it's interesting because that's um, in the subatomic field. We have like Frank Tipler, who is um, subatomic physicist, quantum physicist, who's saying the same thing. He's like, it just, it's the only way it makes sense. 
Um, things really interesting. We're not going to go on yet because this is for next week. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit more about various critics and answering those critics. And then we're going to go in a little bit to the effects of the resurrection because this is really exciting. We've done a lot of apologetics. Next week we're going to finish up the little bit of apologetic things we're going to do. And we're going to talk about why the resurrection is so important um, because it's really exciting. Um, are there any questions or anything as we're kind of closing out here? Yes, next week we'll have a copy. Yeah. Sorry about that this week. That was uh, me and Alan weren't, weren't on our game. So don't blame Teresa for that one. All right, well, I'm going to close this in prayer. Thank you all for coming and engaging in the material. I realize this is, uh, this is heady material. It's a little, uh, takes some time to kind of soak in. And I took me so a while to kind of like filter through it because it's a lot of information. And then you've got to assimilate it into an argument and it's difficult. So thank you all for being here for it. Father, I just thank you for this chance to, um, to both study your word and, uh, and recognize the, uh, the fact that you have not just left us with blind faith, but you have given us wonderful evidence um, that what you say about yourself is true. And we don't just have to accept it blindly, but we can look at it and say, um, it makes sense. Now, we always, uh, we always bow our reason down and, and we say, wait, no, it's, it, it is your word that's the most important. But, um, but you have given us reason. And I thank you that, um, that when it's guided by your Holy Spirit, God, your, that reason comes to the truth. And we can use reason to argue for the, the truth of your word. So I pray, Father, that you are glorified in us. I pray that you would use this information in us to, um, to, to communicate and, and give a good reason for our faith. And also, I pray that you would just strengthen our faith in this, that we would be reminded of the truth that would be exciting. And in times of doubt um, or discouragement, we would remember how incredibly wonderful and true the gospel is. We love you and praise you. Uh, Take care of us this week and um, be glorified in everything we do. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.